great discussion ahead of us, so we will just get started. Um, thank you so much for joining our first webinar of the new year. Um, this is the five top trends for AI in 2024. So if that's what you're here to see, you are certainly in the right place. My name is Kalia Garrido, and I head up marketing and events here at Great Data Minds, which is a hike to company. Um, a little bit more about us. Great Data Minds is a collective of passionate data activists, and we are on a mission to modernize the world of data. We do this in two different ways. The first is that we have our services arm. This is our strategic planning, education, and the deployment of critical data projects. This happens over at hike2.com. In addition to our data services, Hike2 is a fully functional, best-in-class innovation consultancy specializing in digital transformation strategy, design, and implementations. We are also a proud Crest Level Salesforce partner, and so we can assist your company with a variety of technical projects. Now, when it comes to your data and analytics community content and conversation, that's where you can find us at greatdataminds.com. This is where we host our events, we run our videos, we have a podcast, we create content, and we feature transformational thought leaders and innovative technologies just like what we're here to do today. So a little bit of housekeeping before we get going. This is a webinar. You all know a webinar means your cameras and your microphones are off. But of course, we welcome conversation. We would love to hear from you um, in the chat or the Q&A throughout the session. Also, if you would prefer to wait um, until the end of the session, uh, which is going to run about 45 minutes or so for a more formal Q&A, we will reserve some time um, at that point as well. So some introductions. Uh, allow me to um, introduce my esteemed guests. I will start with Morgan Llewellyn. He is a true data and AI visionary. He is an expert at diagnosing customer challenges and implementing unique, durable, and sustainable data and AI solutions for a variety of industries, including legal, government, healthcare, software as a service, internet of things, retail, manufacturing clients. You get it, Morgan knows it. Um, he has held past positions as the chief data scientist, chief operating officer, and chief data strategy and officer. And he is our resident AI expert here at Hike2. Morgan, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Awesome. And um, that's, and a, that's a big introduction to lead, uh, you know, to lead up to. So, uh, you know, hopefully <laughs> you got you. I've, I've seen you do it before. I know you got it this time. Um, and then, of course, we have our very special guest today is Pam Kamath. She is the founder of Adaptive.ai. Um, Adaptive AI brings technology consulting services in AI and data, covering everything from the opportunity analysis right down to the deployment of the products. And Pam brings uh, to our conversation today her own unique blend of expertise and insights in the field of artificial intelligence, specifically focusing on the evolution and future prospects within the AI landscape. Pam, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, uh, Kelia. Yeah, we're excited for this conversation. So Morgan, please take it away. Yeah, thank you so much. And yeah, let's just jump right into it. First, Pam, thank you for being here. Thanks for you know, joining us and really looking forward to this conversation. You know, I've had this date circled on my calendar for, you know, since, you know, kind of the holidays. Uh, so let's just kind of jump into it. You know, what's interesting to me is yeah, having been in the space for a while, right? Like, I mean, let's be honest, maybe close to 20 years at this point. 
you know, what's really changed between how we used to do things five, 10 years ago, and really what AI meant to, you know, our community five, 10 years ago, versus what it means today. Can you tell us a little bit and give your, you know, kind of share your experience over what are some of the significant changes and advancements that we saw in AI, you know, in 2023? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just to take a step back, just between 2017 to 2018 and where we are today, there has been remarkable changes in AI. Um, we kind of went from classification model to generative AI. Now, with the introduction of generative AI in 2023, um, the, the uh, software as such stunned the world in the way knowledge work is created. Um, if you come to think of it, it, it's all about generating new contents. And this kind of had quite a bit of impact, especially if you think about ChatGPT, um, you know, just from our homes down to the professional side, everyone was talking about OpenAI, ChatGPT, and let's look at some of um, the, you know, big changes or developments that took place in 2023, just so that, you know, you can set the stage for our discussion in, for what we can expect in 2024. Uh, the moment uh, ChatGPT pretty much shifted the landscape for us in the way we could create data and we, we could play with it practically, right? Um, you know, we saw Microsoft invested multi-billion dollars in open AI. And Google, um, some of the big players really, I think is what I wanna highlight because they kind of set the stage for us, right? For all the other enterprises to follow. Google was in lockstep with Microsoft, with their BARD. And those changes were hap happening at a uh, quite a dizzying pace. And then Meta, and um, also, um, let's see what uh, Meta had three versions of Llama. If you remember, they kind of had different scales of Llama, just you know, for use at the low to mid-sized organization, down to you know, for big companies for them to be able to leverage Llama, what it can offer, and even startups like Databricks and um, Hugging Face make significant strides in, in the development of the models. Um, but you know what I saw was the market as such was inundated with two types of products, like to kind of look at it that way. High value, low volume products. Um, these high value kind of was addressing multitude of use cases for big companies. And uh, interestingly, there were a number of uh, low value, high volume products, um, you know, one-off products. And I think that's where we will start to see some leveling off as we go into 2024, because when you look at these low value, high volume products, these will be consumed by big players, as simple as Copilot. When you think about what Microsoft Copilot can do, can pretty much address number of different productivity um, needs of an organization. So, that's kind of what I'm seeing right now. And there was another piece that is also taking a center stage, right? And I think that will have quite a bit of impact in 2024, which is the responsible AI. Um, you know, when you think about, um, you know, there are conversations around ethics, some of the emerging risks related to data privacy, cybersecurity. Um, we talked a little bit about hallucinations of, of these models. 
Um, and not all may apply to companies depending on what is it they, that they want to use. Uh, but that continued to be a talk on the table pretty much the entire year. But as we got closer to uh, end of last year, um, you know, was the was the executive order, right? Biden's AI executive order, um, really providing directions and guidance for companies to implement AI more responsibly. So these things will be carried into 2024 and will set the tone. Um, and uh, I'm if there's anything that you would love to add, Morgan, to that. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about, you know, some of that table setting of 2023. And then, you know, we'll talk about, you know, how is that influencing what we think is going to happen in 2024 and even beyond. So as you talk about the, you know, kind of those those transform, you know, transformational things that happened in 2023, it really started happening kind of earlier than that with some of the, you know, some of the transformer models and some of the vector databases. But, you know, let's talk more about, you know, specifically, you, you talked about content creation, right? And, you know, to me, my mind goes to unstructured data and the explosion of possibilities around, you know, content creation and content, um, you know, curation of unstructured documents and images and things like that. Is that, you know, is that really where we should be focused? So, you know, when we're looking for opportunities, is that kind of where the table set for 2024 is take a look at all this unstructured data that you have. And is that, you know, the opportunity going into 2024? And is that really what people are doing in 2023 is being able to create unstructured data or be able to analyze unstructured data? Or do you see other kind of opportunities beyond that? You know, that's a great uh, point you make. Your data will continue to remain, um, you know, very significant to everything that we do around AI. In so many ways, data is AI. Um, and more and more companies are wanting to differentiate with their domain knowledge, right? I mean, you have this large language model. Obviously, it's built out of publicly available data. Um, and I can't even put a number to it. It's a plethora of data, right? That's that's out there for for users to consume, and you can generate more data. You can create, you know, you know, significantly different way the same data that's out there. You can now like rehash it. But what companies are really interested in is how am I going to use my data? and use the power of this large language model and be able to differentiate. And I think that's where the value really lies is how do you assess that? How do you um, curate your own data and blend with the data that's publicly available? And I think that's, that's going to be a big thing in 2024 because as we enter 2023, the focus interestingly shifted in the last six weeks, which I think I'm very excited about, is this multimodal models, right? I mean, with the with the introduction of DALI again, um, you can now create um, great images, right? I mean, you can, you can just come up with uh, many different sophisticated prompts and create um, images. And you're probably seeing that on LinkedIn and other places. You can easily tell that this is, um, it's, a, it's pretty cool to look at it. I mean, the colors are vivid. Um, but I think we are going to see um, a mix of uh, 
many different types of uh, models, right? It's, it's going to be image, uh, text, and voice, and whatnot. I think we're going to start seeing that multimodal kind of models, and LLM is going to take a back seat. Um, and I think that's going to be pretty much the 2024. And um, it's going to be more of 2023, but it's it's multidimensional, in my opinion. Yeah. And it, it would pose an interesting challenge, a really good challenge for companies to say, oh, this is great. How do we take this further, especially for retail, um, supply chain, healthcare? Um, they will want to use the mix of these modalities to see how they can differentiate. Yeah, I think you, you talked about a few different things and, and let's circle back to them. Um, you know, one of them is, you know, kind of what's different. And, you know, from from what I've seen, you know, I think one of the things that that surprises me about what's happening over the past couple of years is companies coming to you, not necessarily for an AI project, but in the strategy. Right. We need a complete strategy. We're not looking for a use case or a product or a project or a tool. We need a complete strategy. And I think that has really fundamentally changed um, in the space of AI, that people are looking for a comprehensive strategy that addresses the entire org, not a particular silo. But I think something else you talked about is really interesting and it touches within the strategy is, you know, how do you differentiate or how do you bring in your own proprietary data when everyone else can use these different tools, right? Whether it be a multimodal model or an LLM, when everyone can leverage these tools, how do you differentiate yourself and how do you use your own proprietary process or your own proprietary data to really differentiate the output of that LLM? Um, because anyone can have the same output, but your process and your, your data can differentiate. And I think that's really interesting. And then, you know, the last thing I think that you brought up there that, you know, is, is worth talking about is what does 2024 look like? You're right. It's probably more like 2023, but expanded opportunity with these multimodal models. So it doesn't necessarily have to be just language anymore. It can be images and some of these, you know, voice, et cetera, video. Um, and so there's a, there's a lot of opportunity in there. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, as we, as we go to 2024, how should organizations be thinking about differentiating themselves from, you know, anyone else, whether it be a startup or, you know, an established player, how do they differentiate themselves when thinking about adopting these new tools? It's a great question. And I think this is exactly what I get asked often uh, when I meet with leaders to begin with, right, uh, when I go into any enterprise talking to them about AI, what I see is the leaders come in with different expectations. And, it, you know, there's nothing really wrong with that because the pace at which we are advancing in AI, it's very hard to catch up. To your point, right? Okay, there is this large language model. How am I going to be using this? And how do I gain competitive advantage? you know, against my competitors or my peers. Um, and then you have many different ways, um, but you cannot just go off without having that overarching strategy, without understanding what the big picture of the organization is. How am I going to align with my vision um, and be able to responsibly bring this in so I'm actually creating value? versus you know chasing shiny objects because there are plenty right now. Um, 
And I see varying degrees of understanding when it comes to AI. And the, the thing that I do is the approach that I take is just get them all on the same page to begin with, right? Do you know your market when it comes to AI? I, I, I propose this three-step approach, which works pretty well, actually, is first of all, get the leaders on the same page. Um, you know, let's size the market. What is it in your industry, whether it's legal, whether it's healthcare, retail, what is going on and where can they differentiate, it, it, including um, low-hanging fruits kind of thing. You know, when you look at customer ops, uh, as simple as voice assistant and things like that, that's more what I see as common denominator across industries. So you need to understand what that is and also your core competency. and have a roadmap, have a roadmap that helps you to make the right investments because it's not technology first. It's having that understanding of what business problem I want to solve. What are those KPIs that I want to achieve, both targeted and aspirational KPIs? Then the data, you know, do I have the data? Not even technology. Do I have the data? Do I need to source this data? How do I monetize my data? And then talk about technology. It could be large language model. It could be even a classification model, right? I mean, those those models still work pretty well uh, when, especially in healthcare, um, you know, maybe for cancer detection and things like that. For them, it's still those very a hard-earned classification model that's been around for decades now that's um, actually has made uh, pretty good strides. Um, and then, you know, let's create a proof of uh, value and to hit some of my KPIs. And more importantly, can I scale now? Because there's a big difference between highlighting something and scaling in AI, because scaling in AI has its challenges, because now you have data, your technology stack, um, you know, all, definitely all the right safeguards. I will pause there because I know, you, you know, you're probably thinking about um, how this will kind of flow through, but having that very methodical approach, a roadmap, technology comes much later. Do you have the data? Do I have a, you know, the data that's in the format that I need? Those things are pretty critical. Yeah, and you know, I think, yeah, as as we as we look at what's happening in AI, you know, yes, there's so much that's new, but what I like to, you know, kind of tell folks is, look, we know the process for innovation. Innovation isn't new, and we know what works and what doesn't. And taking a strategic approach to innovation as opposed to like a tool, you know, purchase a tool approach. You know, those are those are two very different approaches and the strategy always wins. Um, and so while, yes, everything's new, it's the process by which to, you know, adopt it and to incorporate successfully. That is established. There's best practices on that. Um, I think one of the interesting things, you know, that, you know, as we talk more about trends for 2024, and I think one of the things we've seen is, Look, it's incredibly, um, you know, the the barrier to entry to getting a POC or even an MVP, it's been drastically reduced. But through some of the, you know, access to APIs, 
through some of the different coding um, opportunities and you know copilot that type of thing getting to a, a POC very straightforward you know in our experience getting to production enterprise grade that's really where the effort is it's easy to you know put a few, you know, a few documents through something. It's a lot harder to go and put, you know, hundreds of millions of documents near real time through that same system. And so that's really where the effort is. And so as I think about trends for 2024, one of the things I think we will see is how do we move some of those POCs we've done over the past six, 12 months and how do you actually get them to be business and enterprise grade? I think that's going to be a big trend where folks are kind of looking around the room saying, hey, we've got all these little, you know, we've got all these little pieces around the, the cupboard. How do we put it together, though, into something that's really usable by the, by the business? Um, I think that could be a trend that we see. You know, what other trends are you seeing? So multimodal, you know, what, what else do you see and, and what do you think is going to happen in 2024? You know, that's a great question. So when I say about the top five trends, the one of the big ones within that within that um, set of trends would be smaller models. Um, we will start to see, I mean, forget about this, um, you know, ChatGPT or Llama or Hugging Face models. Hugging Face actually is introducing a number of smaller models. Companies are going to think about adopting or integrating with these smaller models. And I think there's more efficiency there and um, greater investments in terms of returns. Um, and I think that will significantly rise. It's going to be very uh, use case focused. Uh, we will start to see perhaps more uh, models very specific to healthcare. You know, right now we are already seeing those that provide guidance, right? Um, how do you guide doctors to um, prognosis of diseases and things like that? Those are like smaller models. And I think we will see that across industries. And I think that's going to be really next um, best thing, at least in my opinion, because you're not boil boiling the ocean, you know, being very uh, specific about your needs and going back to what you said Morgan about scaling up becomes much more efficient right now you have a model that is already personalized to your industry now scaling up from that point becomes a lot more effective than taking a model because we keep hearing about training the model. You cannot overtrain a model. Sometimes when you overtrain your model, your, the usability of that decreases um, because you're looking at so many different safeguards as you train, then it starts starts to lose its utility. You know, that balancing of that becomes a bit of a challenge. So these smaller models is something I think will set a good tone for us going into 2024. Yeah, so let's talk about training models because we, we hear a lot about that where you've got some amazing pros and models out there, um, but now you've also got some of these new custom GPT models or you know think about what Meta's doing where you're able to you know train your own model. You know, and for me, it's always a bit of a challenge of you know the you know can you take what's off the shelf or do you need to think about training your own model. What do you think are some of the things that people need to be aware of when looking to train their own model? Are there gotchas? Are there, you know, just cost or, you know, uh, maintenance uh, things to be aware of when you're thinking about training your own model versus, you know, pulling something off the shelf? 
That's a great question. You know, there's a couple of there are a couple of things that you want to factor in when you want to take that direction. And before we even talk about that, there is I always come in with there are four approaches today that are available for us. Um, if you want to adopt any of these um, models, right, uh, generative AI models, the one is just off the shelf. It's as simple as subscriptions. Um, where you're not training, you're just using it for something very low value, but quick win kind of thing. Um, but the second one is really uh, APIs. And I think you brought that up as well, is to be able to create your own apps based on the APIs exposed by these providers, uh, OpenAI and others. Um, like and the third one is really um, the what I call as the RAC process, right? Which is the retrieval augmented generative uh, approach, um, which is starting to gain a lot of popularity, where you are able to kind of in, you know deploy your own vector database with your domain knowledge and to be able to augment that with um, um, large language model and pooled information, and that needs screening, as you know, and that's the thing that I want to talk about a bit more, but I will do the fourth one before I come back to this one. The fourth one is, you know, just building your own model. The big company is doing that already. NVIDIA is a big, um, you know, as you know, um, a hardware provider that's out there that caters to these uh, companies where they're able to build models from scratch and they can afford to. Um, and it's very expensive. When we talk about money, we are, we're looking at, you know, apples and oranges between rack process and building your models. Um, coming back to this training and um, the vector database, the cost can easily scale up. I mean, based on the number of uh, prompts slash tokens that you want to play with. Now, but one thing to remember is when you train, you don't want to overtrain because there is this thing called overfitting, right? Um, to point when, that when you talk about training with a rag model, it just to you know, just for everyone on the call, it's not necessary to train a new model. You yeah. could take an off-the-shelf LLM and incorporate it into a vector database. That would be one approach. Or you could go and train a model as well. Right. Just to just to folks on the call kind of where we're where the conversation's going right and overfitting is a problem right you to the point that um you are um oversubscribing on certain aspects of your data to the point that you lose its flexibility and and i think you being with that data science background you might be able to better explain that um, so I, I always say because it starts from being less helpful and more focused on management of risks. And uh, you want to know where, that, where, where to draw the line. And it's based on use cases, of course. Um, I just kind of wanted to highlight that because you said what are obviously the, the cost can go up depending on to what extent you want to train these models. I'll give you an example um, for, for a legal use case, right? Let's say this is an interesting one. Um, let's say you are a law firm and you have, you know, significant amount of data that uh, you've been archiving that you are you're in business for 10 plus years and obviously you, you as a law firm you have uh, solved number of different cases legal cases but you have a new attorney coming in every so often 
and they want to see your archive. They want to understand what are some cases won by this company and how, how can I kind of take that information, make some changes and be able to even say whether we will win this case or not. I mean, it's really all about, will I win this case? Did we solve a case like this before? So I think this is where generative AI can play a big role. Um, unlike any other AI models, with, if you think about classification models, all you would typically get, even if you go into very non-linear function, you could get something like, yeah, we did take a case like this before, we won or we did not, and maybe some uh, nuances of that case. But with generative AI, not only can you say whether I won this case or not in the past, but it can provide multitude of data on that case itself, and based on what's publicly available for that type of case, let's say there is this very specific um, law case that you're working with, there could be amendments to that law that you are um, you have taken on, and you can get that information pub that's publicly available. Um, you know what has changed? Has there been any amendments to this law? And then you can augment the two. Now, the, the content richness here is mind-boggling, right? Now, those, those are the kind of use cases that you can, as simple as that, coming in, will I win this case or not? Give me everything about this case. Oh, by the way, what has changed? Is there any other publicly available information that I can draw upon? And these lawyers now have information at the disposal that is so rich for them to like go with confidence, right? How they can tackle something like this. Now that there is that many different ways of achieving this. Um, and I think it went back to your thing about, do I have good data, unstructured data? How am I keeping this data? How am I curating this data? So it all kind of boils down to that, you know, data and training, but you can do all these great things. This huge value here but how do you do it is uh is always a challenge i hope yeah, that helped you know, a little bit to put that in context yeah i think you know as we think about you know as we think about ai output today and how different it is from the ai output that we saw again under some of these different classification models you know i i remember you know back in the day i, I always struggled you know, when someone asks, well, why is this a good, you know, why is this a good case to go after? Or why is this a good person to go market to? You know, whatever the use case might be. And you, you'd have to come back and be like, well, you know, it's a few things, you combine them together. And it, it's, it's a hard explanation. One of the great things about what we're seeing with generative AI, or really, you know, when you're talking about using a RAG style model, is you're able to do what I like to jokingly refer to as show the receipts. You, know, you can say exactly why we think this is a good case or why we think this is a good opportunity because you're able to specifically reference what information you have in your database. So taking your legal example, right? We think this is a good case because this, this, and this, right? Here's the law that's applicable that we think this, this mm -hmm. applies to. We've successfully defended this law, or we've we've had success against this um, this similar case, um, you know, multiple times. And so you're able to, you know, again show the receipts using the RAG model. And you know, things like a RAG model. The other thing that it does is, I like to say, it focuses that LLM. 
whether you choose to train an LLM or whether you use an off-the-shelf LLM with your RAG setup, what it really does is it focuses that LLM over, I want you to give me an answer over these things. And that RAG model uses a vector database, as we all know, right, to um, you know, identify what's the relevant information within my organization to evaluate. What are those similar cases? What are those similar, you know, sales decks or you know, RFPs, whatever, um, for, for us to consider? And that's what makes that RAG model so effective is it really focuses the LLM and it avoids some of that hallucination because you're saying, mm -hmm. I want you to tell me an answer specifically over this piece of content and show me the receipt. I want you to show me exactly where you got that, that information. And, and that's what's really exciting, um, you know, about those RAG models. I think we're we're getting we're getting off topic. I'm going way too into rag mm -hmm. models. I apologize to everyone. You know, uh, I, I think that's yeah. a great one though for us to hone in on because we will continue to see rag being more and more popular, especially on the LLM side, for companies to be able to say, This is what I have, this is my data, this is all the information, but I do want to differentiate. I want to take advantage of LLM. How can I do that? And I think rather than building your own model, RAG is probably the best bet, right, out there. Um, I know there's a question I saw on the, on the board and I wanna very quickly address that. Uh, the question is, what are those five trends then? Um, I'm gonna do a quick roundup of those five so we have that kind of, you know, um, in, within the framework that we are discussing. We talked a little bit about the multimodal models. I mean, we're gonna move away um, as we get closer to maybe even April, May, not entirely sure because we do make these um, unit advancements rather quickly, it seems like. Um, and those multimodal models will give rise to smart glasses, AI agents. Um, definitely when you think about smart glasses, you know, how, how can you use those modalities um, in retail, healthcare, robotics, supply chain. Think about you know you you having those glasses on and you speaking um, to your uh, generative AI model. What do you want to differentiate visually? What is going to be in front of you again? Using taking advantage of the image generation. All of that is going to be elevated. I mean, we keep talking about mixed reality, but with generative AI backing into that. Um, it's going to be all the more richer in how you can leverage these peripheral technologies. Uh, AI agents, part of that multimodal thing is personalized um, again. Now I'm going to go to the next one, which is responsible AI will continue to be on the table, uh, obviously with emerging cybersecurity risks, which will never go away, whether it's AI or anything else, um, data privacy, all of this will continue to remain on the table. Um, those will need to be tackled in lockstep because for me, when I look at AI, the um, value of AI is a function of risk and reward. Um, you want to balance that and manage that tactfully. Um, the third one is smaller models, and I think we touched on that. There's going to be more of that, which is very industry use case driven to address specific needs, which I think will uh, help companies enormously in, in effectively implementing this and seeing value, right? It's returns on investment. Um, and I will say the last one is benchmarking. I know that has been in talks lately. 
um, the accuracies of these model consistency in, in its outcomes, that will continue to remain a challenge. And that's where I think training will come into play. And uh, the benchmarking, uh, as we see hugging face or um, you know, Meta or Google, even with Amazon, they kind of made a late entry into this generative AI kind of thing with the bedrock. The, the general question is, how do you benchmark accuracy? How do you benchmark um, some of the consistencies that you want to see? We talked about hallucinations and all of that, right? Uh, that will be a challenge because what is that benchmark again? I mean, we talk about exams, it can crunch all the exams, it can answer this and it can answer that. But then when we talk about nationalities, you take India, India has its own set of exams. Um, you know, how can large language model prove that it can crunch numbers? I, I think that will continue. That's a, a trend we will continue to see as we keep moving to, okay, now what is that benchmark? So I just wanted to round up the five. Um, I'm not sure, uh, Morgan, if you want to add to that. No, I, I think those are great. Yeah, I think those are great. And the only thing I, if I were to throw one in there, it would just be, you know, the um, the increased sophistic sophistication of the adoption of AI. So, you know, I think one of the really interesting things that we're seeing is how many people are actually doing something. Uh, I think it's 40% of firms they're predicting by 2024 will be doing something in general. And that my, that number is mind-boggling to me. And I think there's going to be a leap between that doing something and doing something more sophisticated. And I think that'll be the other trend is people are going to up their game. People are going to um, develop best practices, really kind of, you know, what you're talking about with benchmarks, right? So what are the best practices? What are the benchmarks? And there's going to be some, um, you know, some sophistication around just best practices. Um, that would be right. And I think that's uh, very typical with any new technologies, because as these technologies emerge and evolve, you always want to keep up with that, right, in terms of how do you benchmark, what are my standards, um, you know, is it IEEE standards for a company that they are following and they want to benchmark against that from its requirements and compliance, or if it's ISO, you're an ISO or an ISHAM, what are my benchmarks? I mean, what, what am I uh, expected to show when it comes to cybersecurity, data privacies? Those, those topics, whether it's AI or any other technology, will continue to um, remain. And what kind of is interesting is with AI, it's just the complexity of the technology. So it can, you want to have the talent in-house or you want to bring in this doesn't really matter but the talent is so essential um like you know to be able to kind of have that appreciation and on the nuances that these models and the technology as such can bring um i just want to kind of I read off a couple of numbers yeah, we've got a couple of minutes left, Pam. Let's talk about one thing I know that's um, kind of near and dear to your heart. And we can talk about specifics or, you know, just general landscape. You know, there's been talk of, you know, AI regulation. We see the Biden executive order. We see what the EU is doing. As we think about regulation or just um, security in general, um, you know, what are your thoughts or what do you think we're going to see in 2024? Or what are your thoughts on best practices of what people can do today? That's a great question, right? And I think early 
last year, um, we saw the NIST RMF framework, which is the risk management framework that um, the NIST organization put forth. Um, and that provides some sort of boundaries in how organizations can navigate in terms of building these models or their solution around AI more responsibly in the governance that they need to implement. Governance is really leadership. Ultimately, it's the leadership. Our leadership behind um, the uh, value that they want to drive out of AI, the investments that they want to make. And what that really means is if, um, you know, not only will you own the success behind AI, but should something go wrong, are leaders able to step up and voice their transparency and accountability in a way that they can, you know, explain what happened to their stakeholders or customers. So that's governance. And I think the NIST framework does a pretty good job in kind of anchoring around that message saying you want to have a good governance in place if you want to implement AI and you want to be able to have safeguards around um, security, ethics, uh, privacy, and robustness as well. As you uh, have heard maybe before, there are model kind of things that can happen because it's it, the pipeline, the data pipeline that you feed to these models shift as um, things change and you want to keep an eye on model drifts, concept drifts. And I think the NIST did a pretty decent job in actually proposing this framework. You want to be able to monitor, manage, and measure your AI outcomes for different um, set of safeguards that you put in place. And you want to have a good governance. And I think that will continue to remain um, and I, you know, if you work within some of these frameworks and align with the compliance or regulation that you want to um, uh, be in compliance with, I think that's really the baseline in how you want to move with any AI implementation is have a framework, know the regulations that you need to comply with and ensure that you have the safeguards, measure, monitor and manage. Um, you know, prudently, so you're able to reap the benefits of AI. Yeah, I, th I think that's that's really that's really key is understanding what is the the legal regulation framework, and you know, it's not it's not enough to know you know the executive order, right? Because there's multiple levels that we're seeing when it comes to AI regulation. You could have at your at your organization level. You could have contractual obligations to customers that you need to think about. Or in an industry such as healthcare or recruiting and HR, you might have a set of industry-specific regulations that you have to meet in addition to federal or EU. So just understanding that landscape mm -hmm. is really important. And this isn't insurmountable, I think, is the other thing, right? You shouldn't, you shouldn't be frozen by fear that you can't do anything because there's too much risk. I don't think that's what any of us are saying, is you just have to understand what are the rules of the game and how do you play within those rules? And, and that's the important part. And the rules aren't by any means. The rules aren't like, you know, onerous. Um, you know, there's a lot of daylight in those rules to play. I think if you even look at some of the, the stuff that you're seeing coming from some of the states, right, it's, it's, 
they're providing a framework for folks to explore. They're not saying you can't do anything, even at like the state governmental level, they're saying, here are the rules by which you can evaluate, um, you know, large language models or generative. And so just understanding the different levels in what levels apply to either your specific organization or even your department is really important. So I think that's great. Um, you know, we've got about 15 minutes left. I think we've got a few questions that have come in uh, you know, Kelly, do you want to kind of tee us up and anything yeah. coming in for us? Yep, absolutely. Great discussion so far, guys. Thank you so much for this. Um, we have a, our first question comes in from Scott, who I know is in Chile, Pittsburgh. Um, he is asking if, um, what are the implications or how does AI impact cybersecurity? Ooh, that's a great question. Pam, do you want to take that first and, and I'll go after you or, or vice versa? So, I mean, leveraging AI to solve cybersecurity um, needs or requirements is not something that is new. I mean, um, there have been number of tools already that uh, we see in the market today that backs into AI classification model in how threats are managed or in how you triage between vulnerability threats and your assets. What, need, what, what do you need to focus on today? How do you prioritize? What patches you want to put in place? How do you monitor everything that's behind your firewall? These tools have been out in the industry for a while now, built around AI. Um, but I think there's going to be more and more dependency on generative AI. Um, not entirely sure what that may look like. And if the question is more about would cybersecurity be taking advantage of um, the, the some of the developments in AI? Absolutely, uh, because it's almost like you have to set a thief to catch a thief sort of thing with uh, with uh, cybersecurity. Um, but if you're talking about what threats or what we may be seeing, um, within the cybersecurity side of things, it will be mostly around data, um, data poisoning, backdoor attacks. Those kind of things will continue to be um, on, the, on the front and center for cybersecurity task force um, in years to come. Uh, and also with the, with the prompt engineering, I mean, you could create, you know, this is where I think you need to have good safeguards in place. You could, you could potentially create nefarious prompts and um, invoke, you know, unexpected outcomes or uh, things of that nature. So those, I think, will be some, like, very similar to SQL um, injection, right? Like, it's, now it's kind of shifts now. Okay, now where are these um, loopholes or vulnerabilities that we could take uh, advantage of that would be on the prompt engineering side? Data, um, you know, all of that will continue to evolve and will continue to keep cybersecurity task force busy. Yeah, let me, let me ping off that because I think you, you bring a great point is, you know, if we're just talking about tools, right? Tools are already used AI for cybersecurity like Splunk. Uh, you know, I think that's a great point. You know, in a lot of places, AI is not new. Um, you know, but then specifically, what are some of the, the risks, right? And how do you think about risk mitigation with things like generative AI, large language models, that type of thing. And there it really does come back to data. And I think the SQL injection attack is, is a great example, um, you know, with prompts. 
you know, just like SQL, you don't necessarily give everyone access to writing SQL and changing your SQL. And I think that's a very similar setup we're going to see as, as, you know, kind of organizations evolve and mature on prompt engineering. You don't give everyone access to changing that prompt. That prompt is more or less locked down. Um, once you have a consistent and reliable output, if you have good guardrails and you know what you're trying to achieve, that's more or less locked down in the ability to change some of those prompts. If it's a part of an automated process, there's, you know, there's a, you know, it's, it's more SDLC at that. And so I think there's a lot that we can look to just focusing on prompt engineering that we can look to that's already good development best practices that we should just be thinking about applying to prompt engineering. And then the other piece would be, I think, you know, early on, especially, we just saw a lot of misinformation out there around large language models and generative AI that it exposes all your data. Everyone's going to have access to your proprietary secrets. And that's just not the case. If you think of the big cloud players who are behind, you know, generative AI and LLMs, they have built their businesses on protecting your information. They're not gonna go and just willy-nilly throw that all, all away. Um, and so I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. However, you know, if done improperly, you could risk some of that information. But that's, you know, the onus is on us as technology experts to make sure we're coming up with the proper safe solution. And there's a number, number of them out there. And so just being aware of what you're, you know, what you're purchasing, what you're implementing and having a safe and secure architecture, that's the key. Yes, there are some like free things that, you know, could be potentially bad. Just don't do those free, potentially bad things. You know, focus on the use cases that you can secure. Great. Thank you. Um, okay, we have another question coming in from Mateo, and it's it's sort of similar, but just with a different aspect. Like, how does AI af um, affect and sort of interact with blockchain? Oh, that's a that's a really good question. If I may, let's come to innovation real quick. Um, will will regulation stifle innovation? Because I, I think that that fits into some of the things. And then we can talk about blockchain. Um, okay. You know, I think. You know, regulation stifling innovation. Is there a potential for it? Sure. Have we seen that today? I would say no. And I think there's actually an opportunity for regulation to accelerate the adoption of AI in a lot of industries. And I'll take an example coming from HR tech. So think about um, the industry where you are recruiting individuals and you're trying, you know, trying to get them to apply to jobs and, and become employees. There was a lot of uncertainty regarding, can I use AI uh, to, to do some of this? And that uncertainty came from bias and concern over, is there bias in the results? And if so, as a, as a you know, organization using this technology, I'm not liable. And so you've started to see some movement in places like New York City, where they've implemented regulations that basically make clear the ground rules for, you know, an organization looking to purchase AI technology. These are the ground rules that you need to have in any technology that you're going to purchase. And if you do that, you basically check, you know, check the box. And why I think this is important and won't necessarily stifle innovation, but speed adoption is, now during the sales cycle, 
as an AI vendor or you know, as, as another vendor who uses AI, you're spending less time defending, could this possibly be biased and more time focusing on, hey, we checked the box that New York City requires. Now let's talk about how this can improve your recruiting process. Let's talk about how this technology improves your business. So I think regulation, because you know there's so little of it out there, I think regulation can actually give people a floor or a ground on which to stand to not necessarily be addressing bias and you know uh, other types of you know, security concerns. You can be talking about the value of that product as long as it meets those, uh, those requirements. That's my thought there. I think it speeds adoption. It doesn't necessarily hurt innovation. Pam, what do you think? No, I would absolutely echo that because let's look at healthcare as such. There is HIPAA guidance or regulation. There is also FDA mandates, but that has not stopped healthcare from innovating, right? I mean, that's a great example in and of itself. I mean, companies continue to make big strides in healthcare. Um, look how far we've come along in um, advancements with health technology and uh, all backing into FDA requirements, all backing into HIPAA requirements. So I, these things actually help companies with boundaries that they need to work within and also helps companies give confidence to their uh, to their board members or um, their customers and shareholders saying, you know, we have these expectations that industry demands on us or the government demands on us, but we work within this, we in innovate within this. And I think that's a really good thing um, in, in many ways. Uh, if you look at um, car safety belts, right, that we wear, that hasn't stopped um, uh, you know, auto industry from advancing. We work around it. And it also gives people confidence to put on their seat belts. But we are seeing some great things happening um, within the car itself. So, um, you know, the, these things are good. It always kind of, when, when a regulation is introduced, there's always a, a little bit of commotion. Now, how do we align with this? What safeguards should we put? What are those industry standards? But once you get within that, mode the process you continue to make strides um so in so many ways i think it's there's a it's good and bad and we've seen it work so we we should not uh, feel intimidated we have another question uh yeah we do we have a few different questions coming in from um rami we see you we see your questions i know that we've got a couple the the most recent one is how um, can ai affect healthcare directly that's a great question pam would you like to take the first stab yeah. at this one and i would love to i would love to in my 27 years of um experience being in technology, I, I must have spent about 70% of that time in healthcare. So I've helped companies like Mayo Clinic, Johnson & Johnson, uh, Global Pharma, Care Fusion on their medical devices, and hopefully I can um, shed some light here. I think there's been a no better time for healthcare than what it is seeing today in AI. I mean, AI is going to put them in completely a different um, zone. Um, and obviously, when you look at some of the classification models that's out there that provides superior results on cancer detection, 
Um, and, you know, a radiologist now is equipped with incredible technology to make some prudent decisions and choices around um, uh, treatments and diagnosis, right? And I think similarly, um, AI, especially generative AI and multimodal models is going to make a significant impact in advancing healthcare outcomes. Uh, companies are already embracing this. I mean, big companies can afford to build their own model. That's what's happening right now. When we talk about trends, you have companies like Pfizer, Novartis, and others. Um, they're, you know, further ahead in this game in, in thinking how they can take these models off the shelf or build from scratch and help doctors um, as you see, there is a lot of burnout issues in the doctors and nurses and, um, you know, other healthcare professionals, even in the administration side, um, just the sheer amount of administrative work that's necessary, again, partly because of regulation demands that you document everything for the right reasons, um, it kind of takes the best time away from the doctors or healthcare professionals. So this is where I think um, the, the newer models is going to significantly help um, healthcare industry. And I think uh, it's, it's an exciting times actually uh, for even someone like me who's been in this in this um, domain for many years, um, expecting some really amazing advancements in this area. And I guess real quick, um, you know, kind of two thoughts here, kind of similar based on my health experience, um, you know, healthcare experience, you know, a lot of, you know, in behavioral health or even, you know, even in clinical, there's so much valuable information in notes and unstructured data. And so how do you use some of this new technology to extract information from these notes to provide better personalized care to an individual, whether it be personalized communication or just better care plans. And then the other piece is, you know, kind of what I always jokingly refer to is like the unsexy use cases of just better quality data. So, you know, we haven't been able to classify this particular thing. Well, maybe there's information. What we've seen is there could be information note sections to help you better classify. Um, and be able to understand it from a business perspective better. So I think, you know, there's kind of two um, healthcare use cases that we've seen where the first is better quality of care through either better communication, better interaction with the individual, because the cost of content creation is going to zero. And so mm -hmm. we can personalize that. Or there's really kind of this back of the house, how do you use large language models, generative AI, better quality data, or just reduce the infrastructure cost of things like parsers, that type of thing, where we've seen, you know, 3x reductions in cost by moving from kind of a traditional parser to another. Uh, those are kind of two use cases I see. Kalia, I'm going to throw it back to you. I think we're, we're close to time. Pam, this so. has been a ton of fun. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation today. Yeah, thank you both so much for this great uh, kind of future look into what the year to come is going to hold when it comes to AI. Um, I welcome everybody on the line to follow the Great Data Minds YouTube channel. Um, you can find the recording of this event as well as many others there. And then you can always hit us at greatdataminds.com. Morgan, thank you as always for sharing your expertise. Pam, thank you so much for being our special guest today. And I wish you both a great day. Thanks, everybody, thank for you. listening in. Thank you. Bye.